Welcome to Katusa First. My name is Caleb Moore. We are a community of servants that serve the community. We work our way through a book of the Bible at a time, and we do that so we can't skip the hard stuff. And there's a lot of hard stuff in Scripture that we should learn to wrestle with. Now, what we had been doing is working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we did that for almost two years. And then we did the book of Job in a day and the book of Jeremiah in a day. And I apologize for doing Jeremiah in a day. I was like, I should have broke that up into two because by the end, I was exhausted and y'all looked exhausted. Like, that's just a lot of information, but we did it, so hooray. Um, and now we are going to study, not in a day, but we are going to go pretty much like we did through Luke, but it won't take us nearly as long. There's only 11 or 12 chapters. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. So you can go Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Since we did spend two years in the New Testament, I thought it would be good for us to spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament when I was telling somebody yeah, I just preached through Job, Jeremiah, and now we're doing Ecclesiastes. They asked if I was having a midlife crisis. And I was like, oh, most likely, but um, I'm just bringing my church along with me for fun um, so you can enjoy my journey. But Ecclesiastes is not a depressing book for me, though for many it sounds like kind of like, oh my gosh, this book is heavy. Because it's a basically 11 chapters of everything is pointless and nothing is worthwhile. Uh, and then the answer to the problems that is presented is in like the last paragraph of the entire book. But there is something about this that is very freeing to me, and hopefully as we go along to it, and, and don't worry, I won't leave you hanging for 11 weeks of despair, only to end with one week of joy. Uh, there are hints of joy all throughout this book. And so turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and we will start our reading there. While you're turning, um, this is, if you are a new believer or haven't spent much time in church, if you're trying to familiarize yourself with the Old Testament, this is a great place to start. And the reason why is there are no stories of Abraham or history of Israel in here. I don't have to, like, try to figure out how to pronounce 80 different names. There's not a bunch of laws and a bunch of rules. Um, there's not a lot of that stuff. In fact, you're not even going to find prophecies about Messiah. You're hardly going to even hear the name of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so there is no unique name Yahweh in the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's a really interesting book to find itself in the Old Testament. But as we read, I think you'll understand what the point was of it being written. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. If you got it, would you say, I got it? The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So let me go ahead and stop there. And we're going to start and stop, start and stop a little bit more than we normally do. So this is a preacher. This is somebody, uh, the, the technical term means somebody who's just gathered a bunch of people. And he's about to begin kind of his sermon. And it's not so much a sermon for the people as it was a sermon to himself, which if as a pastor, I can tell you all my sermons are sermons to me. I preach to myself more than I preach to you. So if you see me get like really worked up, it's because I'm really enjoying myself preaching to me, <laughs> right? I'm like, I really needed to hear that. And there's a lot of times where I'm preaching and I'll have something in my, like I'll say something that wasn't in my notes and I'll kind of make like a, oh man, that was good, God. I'm going to remember, like that was, like I think that was for me, you know? And so even though I'm trying to encourage and equip you, as I preach, I encourage and equip myself. He starts off his sermon, it was a little poem that he begins with, and he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
Well, what does that mean? The word vanity is, uh, in its literal understanding, has more to do with like it's a smoke, it's a mist, it's a breath. And so he's looking around at the world and he says everything is smoke and more smoke. Like it's visible, you can see it, but if you try to grab it, it slips through your fingers. And so he's looking over all of the world and sees all the problems and he calls it vanity of vanities. Now when a Hebrew person repeats himself is to make a point. It's the ultimate vanity. It's like the song of songs, this is the best song. Vanity of vanities, this is the most vanity. So what is it that he says is the most vanity? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been done, or what has been, is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. So let's just, just take a break there for a second, because he's a real cheerful fellow, isn't he? He's like, look, I looked around, everything looks pointless, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, my work doesn't really seem to matter, uh, I was born, I'm going to die, and then somebody else is going to take all my stuff. And this is going to be 11 chapters of that. But there's a key point to this that helps us understand why he is saying what he is saying. And it is the phrase, under the sun. He's going to use this phrase over and over again. And what he is doing is he is telling us, from the perspective of somebody who just lives under the sun, life is pointless. Unless you have an eternal perspective, life is pointless. If you do not believe that there is a God, life is ultimately pointless. Pointless. This is a quote from one of the top leading atheists, Richard Dawkins. He said, The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives. Whimpering with fear, others are slowing being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all species are dying of starvation and thirst and disease. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. It kind of sounds like what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to say, but it's an atheist who looks around at the world and looks at generation has come and gone over and over and over again, and none of this seems to even really matter. I can't even remember his name. I used this illustration a long time ago, but do you remember the name of the last person who walked on the moon? Only 12 people have ever walked on the moon. And I mentioned his name one time, and none of you had heard of him. I can't even remember his name anymore, and I'm the one who made the illustration. Look at what he accomplished. He left this planet and walked on the moon, and we don't know who he is. How many of you know the name 
of your great, great, great grandfather. Maybe a couple of you, those of you into family trees, but you look around, most of you don't. If I was to say just five generations ago, great, 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 great grandfather, most of you have no idea who that person was, and that's your kin. That's your blood. That's your family. You don't know anything about them. You know what that means, right? Five generations after you, no one will know who you are. Even if you walk on the moon, most people won't care. So what's the point in life? You can work hard, you can accomplish great things, and all it takes is a little bit of time, and your memory is wiped from the face of the earth. This is what the atheist Richard Dawkins is feeling, and he looks at the world and he says, there's nothing but pitiless indifference. It's all vanity of vanities. And I know that uh, many of us, we feel this way sometimes, where we ask ourselves, what is even the point? What's the point? Have you ever tried to help somebody or help several people and nothing works right? And you go, you know what? What's the point of even helping people? It doesn't work out at all anyways. I got hate mail this last week. Not from any of you. <laughs> it was them over there, right? No, there's nobody sitting over there. Um, a former student of mine. I, I had posted just a short little video on the kind of a scientific argument of why I'm pro-life. It wasn't attacking or hateful or mean uh, I, I don't even think I bring the Bible or religion into it. I was just like, because even when I was an atheist, I was pro-life because I know what a baby is, right? And um, I just made this short little video trying not to be offensive because I want to build bridges to have better communication with people who might disagree with me, right? I just, I want to build those bridges. And I got hate mail from a former student who says, you are everything I hate about Christianity, and this is why we all hate you now. And like I was like, man, I took you on a mission trip. We were really good friends. Like I've invested in your life. Remember when your girlfriend dumped you, and I was like reaching out, and you were so appreciative of me of doing all this stuff. And I was like, I've had this stuff happen all the time, where you preach and you pour into people and you love people, and they don't care. They don't care, right? Now, some people do care, but if we're honest, it's the, the people who fall through the cracks or get, like, wound us back. Those are the ones we focus on. We don't focus on the good. We focus on all the negative. And then we find ourselves going, what's the point? Why am I doing this anyways? Why do I work so hard to understand this book, to communicate it to other people, if Half the time, people don't even pay attention. And let's be honest, you don't remember what I preached last week because I don't remember what I preached last week, right? I've moved on to another book. And we might get a little snips here and there, and we might take little nuggets, but vanity of vanity. Sometimes it can all seem like vanity. And, and we have these stages in different parts in our life, right? Um, if you're in your 40s or 50s, I don't know, it might be different for everybody. They call it a midlife crisis where you've worked hard, you've gone to school, you've got your family, you've got your house, you've got your job, you've got a retirement that you're working on, and you go, I'm not as happy as I thought I would be. Isn't this supposed to like make me feel a certain way? Aren't I supposed to feel secure with money in the bank? I don't feel that secure. The world's gone crazy, and I'm confused all the time. In marriage, they call it the seven-year itch, 
right? You get married because you're like, oh, she's going to complete me, or this is person, oh, they, they know me, they know everything about me, and then like seven years later, after seven years, you don't even know me, right? And you go through these seasons, and you start to go, did I make a big mistake? Maybe I need to do something drastic. Maybe, okay, I'm going to move houses, or I'm going to change jobs, and I'm going to do all this. That will fill the hole in my heart, and you make big drastic changes, and it's good for a little bit. The adrenaline of a big change makes you feel happy. And it's like, okay, this is what I was missing. And then a couple years later, it starts all over again. You're like, oh, that, I need, do I need to make another big change? Here's what the preacher says. Verse 10, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already. In the ages before us, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I think for us in this generation, the illusion of new things is what's very tempting. Technology is advancing at such a rate that we can't keep up with it. And so it always seems like there is new stuff on the horizon. But let's be honest, if you got the last, iPhone when it was new and you were all excited that you got the new thing, it's already out of date because there's another new one. And next year there's going to be another new one. And you can temporarily feel like fix this need deep within your soul with a new piece of technology, but it's just going to be another year. And that thing is obsolete and you're not going to be content and happy with it anymore. I remember uh, I'd always dreamed of virtual reality, right? Like I, I love video games. And I was like, oh, man, someday we'll be able to put on, like, a VR headset and play video games and all this stuff. I've, I got one of those. It came out. I was so excited. I begged my wife, please, right? And I had to save, and I had to save. And then finally I was like, okay, I got it. And I played with that thing all the time. And I would tell everybody, you got to try this. You can go into a whole other world. Some of you have come to my office, and I convinced you to put it on your head, and I sent you on a roller coaster, right? And, like, and it was incredible. I haven't played with that thing in four months. It was new. But what is new has already been. There will always be some new thing. You look at these guitars up here. No new chords will be discovered. We know every chord that you can play on that guitar. And however you rearrange those chords to make a song, somebody else has already done that. Now, you might be able to do it with a slight difference or variation, but it's already been done. And if you are smart, you already know this. People who are intellectuals can often struggle with depression because they can look at the world and they see this is just a pattern repeating itself, and it usually doesn't end well. It's like we're just caught in this vicious circle, and our lives can get caught up in that vicious circle. Let's keep reading. We're having fun. Are you guys happy yet? Because I'm telling you, this book makes me so happy. And I, Let's go. Let's go. Verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. So now we're getting to figure out who this person writing this is. So uh, there's a little bit of debate, debate, but not much. And I'm pretty sure Solomon wrote this. Or else somebody wrote it with Solomon's perspective. 
But I just think it's the safest bet. Uh, there, like I say, there's a little bit of debate, but I think it's a safe bet to say this is King Solomon. Why? Well, because he's the only son of David that became king, and he was given the greatest intelligence that man has ever had. He was wiser than anybody else. And so he's going to talk about he had all this wisdom. So he has more money and more knowledge to test things that you wish you could test. You know, people say money don't make you happy. I say, well, I sure would like to find out on my own. <laughs> right? Anybody have, like, billionaire daydreams? Man, if I was a billionaire, if I was a billionaire, I do, yeah, right? I, I, I am so guilty of this. And I, I don't know what my problem is because uh, I don't play the lottery or anything like that. But I was like, man, if I ever won the lottery, and in my mind I think of all the things I could do for the church. <laughs> Lord, Lord, if you would bless me with a bazillion dollars. We could have a really nice gym, right? You know, um, you try to negotiate with God. Like, if you give me what I want, I'll give you a little bit off too. But, like, if you go hiking on a trail, um, there's a park ranger, and the park ranger's job is to know where every trail goes. And, like, hey, if you want to be back by sunset or if you want to watch the sunset from the top, take this trail. If, if you wanted just a short walk, you take this trail. If you go this one, there's bears there. Don't go there, there's bears on that trail. And how does a park ranger know that? Because he has the ability to walk every trail. He knows it, and he's lived it. Well, King Solomon has the money to pursue every trail. What's it like to be super smart? He knows. What's it like to be super rich? He knows. What's it like to be super successful and super powerful? He knows. And he goes down all these trails and he comes back and he says, down that trail is vanity, down that trail is vanity, down that trail is vanity, down that trail is vanity. I'm like, well, what a bummer. I wanted to know what, I wanted to find out what was on the trail. But he tells us so that you don't waste your time. I don't want to waste my time in this life. And you don't want to waste your time in this life. And if you think certain things will fulfill the deep hole in your heart that exists under the sun, you will be frustrated and disappointed. But if you can have an eternal perspective and believe that there is something more than just this world in chaos and know that there is a God who designed you and has a purpose for your life, that fills that void. That's what he's going to come to. That's the conclusion that he's going to find. He says, I've had money. Money didn't make me happy. I've had all of these different things. Didn't make me happy. But I found God. Let's keep reading a little bit. Verse 13. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is all vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Now, there's a key to this second part as well, because he keeps talking about his heart. He says, and I, I sought in my heart, I looked into my heart, and this is what most of us tend to do. You look inward for answers. 
He's like, I, I, I look to my own self to try to find, is there any satisfaction in having wisdom? I looked within myself to figure out, who am I? What should I be doing? Where should I go? There's an old saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, wherever you go, there you are. And this idea of looking inward and trying to find yourself, it's an illusion. It's a myth. You're not going to find yourself if you move to Cancun or if you move over here, wherever you go, there you are. And the same problems that you have here, you will take with you wherever you go. This inner reflection thinking that somehow the answer is within inside yourself if you could just think about it longer. And essentially what he does is he looks inward and there, there are positive things that come from looking inward, right? Uh, the world is full of self-help books and they help you kind of work through some of your stuff and there's good reason for that. Introspection is a good thing. We should be looking inward to say, why did I do this? How can I do better? Do I need to motivate myself? There's nothing wrong with that. But looking inward for a deeper sense of who you are and satisfaction in that, you won't find. In fact, the more I know myself, the more thankful I am that Christ saved me. Right? The, the, the deeper I am honest with myself about the actions that I have done in the past or even the present, I go, why did I say that? Well, that, that's just the ego. Why did I exaggerate that story just a little bit? Because I want to be liked because I don't feel like I'm enough. Why do I do the things that I do? Just need attention. Just need approval. Right? Well, where does all that come from? Well, because it's basically me telling God that he hasn't satisfied the desire of my heart. It's just me ignoring what God has already given me and me trying to find it in the people and places around me. Is that too honest for y'all? Nah, right? Because you do it too, don't we? You ever exaggerate that story just a little bit? Um, there's a term, when preachers do it, they call it pastoral exaggeration. When they tell you the fish they caught was this big, it was this big, right? And I've known a lot of preachers who uh, are really great at pastoral exaggeration, and I had to remind a friend of mine, I says, you know, another word for pastoral exaggeration is lying, right? <laughs> Because you do it too often. Why are you doing that so much? Well, it's because I want people to think I'm better than I am. The introspection with great wisdom. I, I, for me, th this verse 18 is just set and just laid there in my mind all week. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more you know about the way humans work, the more frustrated you get with humanity. There's a reason children are so happy. <laughs> they haven't got to know the rest of us yet. But as time goes on and you get wounded and you get frustrated and you get hurt, you get abandoned and you get all these things, and then you just find yourself saying, what's the point? Why even love anymore? I've been hurt so much. I'm not going to give myself to anybody else to try to encourage them or love on them or help them through rough times because they're just going to stab me in the back. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. It is all vanity if your only perspective is one under the sun. If this world is all there is, then we have to agree with Richard Dawkins that there is no such thing as actually good or evil. There's no deep inner purpose or greater purpose or deeper meaning it's all just chasing after the sun now let's turn to chapter 12 
the very end. And I, I don't want to leave you on a sour note, so I feel like I need to give you the, uh, the well, tell me this gets better, right? <laughs> We're just going to be depressed for the next 11 Sundays or so? I, mean, I, I don't know. Um, chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So that right there means that every little thing you do is not vanity, because the creator of the universe will bring every secret hidden thing into light. Now, if you are not a believer, that's a terrifying thing. For a believer, it means that my sins won't even show up. It means that only the things that have glorified the kingdom will be identified with me. Because the rest of the stuff was buried when they buried Christ. And a new me was born when Jesus was resurrected. The, the reason I think Ecclesiastes makes me happy, and I really mean that. I'm not just being facetious. Uh, I got to ride my motorcycle for a little bit yesterday. And uh, motorcycle make me happy. But I, I had my backpack and I was, I was going to go speak at some place, and I was contemplating riding the bike there. Uh, it got canceled last minute, but I was, I was like, okay, it's an electric motorcycle, so I had to take a charger because I wasn't sure if I could make it there on one charge. And I was like, but I'm going to get hungry, so I'm going to need some snacks in there. And I'm going to need to like put whatever I need for the journey in that backpack because I'm going to need it. But I don't want to overload myself or I won't enjoy the ride with a big old heavy backpack. And so what Ecclesiastes does is removes things out of my life that I don't need so I can enjoy the journey. If I am obsessed with my career or somebody else trying to fulfill my soul, I will end up unhappy. And what Ecclesiastes does, it just removes things out of your bag. You don't need that for the journey. You don't need that for the journey. Like, it's not, it's not even saying it's bad to pursue a career. It's not bad to be rich. But if you're going to try to use those sayings to figure out who you are and fill that God-shaped hole in your heart, you are going to be disappointed because it's vanities of vanities. And so for me, Ecclesiastes takes the pressure off. And it, it's like this relief valve when I am just overloaded with, like, i got to do this and i got to do that. Um, we, we've been at this church for a while now, and we've— hit several benchmarks. And I always think when we get to this benchmark, when we grow, I mean, we're missing a lot of people today. I, a lot of people are on vacation. But you ought to see from my perspective on Sundays, even today, we're much fuller than we were a year or two ago. Like, it's been growing. And we hit benchmarks. And we've got David on staff. And we've got great things that have happened. And with every benchmark, I go, this is going to be it. I'm going to feel great. And we get there, and I go, I'm happy for like a week. And then I look down the road and I go, oh, maybe I got to get to the next benchmark. Then, then I'll be happy. Instead of just enjoying the journey of what God is doing. So Ecclesiastes frees us up to enjoy the ride. You know how frustrating it would be? Imagine if you were going on a, a nice long ride in Oklahoma in fall. The leaves have just changed colors. And you're going on this nice, beautiful, windy backcountry road. Oklahoma has some beautiful backcountry roads. 
and you're just in a car and you've, you've got your family with you and everybody you love with you in the car and you're on this road and the whole time, every car you look by, you go, man, I wish I had that car. Oh, man, look at that car. Oh, I wish I could get that car. Man, if I had a better job, I'd get that car. And everything, and you don't see anything of the good going on because you're too busy going, uh-uh. You don't even care that your kids are there. You're not pouring into them. You're not having fun with your family because you're distracted. Ecclesiastes is about removing the distractions. If there is no God, life is pointless. It is. There's no such thing as morality if there is no God. There is no good or evil. There's just preference. But if there is a God, then there is ultimate meaning to life. Then the bad times don't define you. I've said this before, and I'll end with this. If you are a believer, your worst days on this earth are as close as you get to hell. If you are not a believer, your best days on this earth are as close as you get to heaven. God brings everything into perspective and reminds us that it's not pointless, that there is hope, that there is love, that there is goodness in the world, that it is worth fighting for joy. You have to fight for joy, don't you? Joy doesn't always come easy. Sometimes you've got to fight for it. But it's worth it if you have an eternal perspective where you keep God in your sights, ignore all the distractions around you and everybody trying to pull you this way and this way, telling you that purpose is over here. Advertisers are great at this, aren't they? They always, like they sell everything as though it will fill the hole in your heart. You bought it one time. Did it, fit, did it work? No, but you'll fall for it again and again and again and again. It's a vicious cycle. My hope is as we work our way through this book that there will be places in here where you did not realize you had been setting your hope for joy in things that cannot fulfill you. And when that happens, it's a little painful. But the great thing is you get to replace it with God who can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Amen?